This episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast is sponsored in part by Law Enforcement Labor Services in Minnesota. Law Enforcement Labor Services, also known as LELS, is Minnesota's largest public safety labor union with over 7,000 Minnesota public safety members serving in all areas of public safety. Law enforcement, 911 dispatch centers, corrections, public safety administrative support personnel, and firefighters. Established in 1977, LELS serves over 260 different public safety agencies and over 450 locals across the state of Minnesota. With their administration, general counsel, three staff attorneys, and 14 business agents, LELS provides contract negotiations for better wages and benefits, grievance processing and representation, discipline representation, mediation and arbitration, assistance with representation for post-board hearings, and in-line-of-duty death benefits for survivor families. Find out more about Law Enforcement Labor Services at LELS.org. LELS.org. Episodes of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast may contain strong language and violent content. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everyone, and welcome. I'm Sheriff Scott Rose from Minnesota, and I'm your host for today's new episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast. He's walking eastbound, walking eastbound. In each episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast, we'll share the details and the stories of how these men and women heroically lost their lives in the line of duty. Our mission is to help ensure their service and sacrifice is never forgotten. Thanks for spending some time with me today to remember and honor these fallen heroes. Anoka County, Minnesota. The fourth most populous county in the state of Minnesota, Anoka County covers a 446-square-mile area just north of Minneapolis-St. Paul. The county seat and the namesake of the county is the city of Anoka, which is derived from the Dakota word Anokotanhan, meaning on or from both sides, referring to its location on the banks of the Rum River. It's a beautiful county with 12 lakes, 13 rivers and creeks, and several wildlife management areas and parks throughout the county. Back then, they had just under 300,000 people who called Anoka County home. Saddam Hussein is captured in Tikrit by the United States 4th Infantry Division. Good afternoon. Yesterday, December the 13th, at around 8.30 p.m. Baghdad time, United States military forces captured Saddam Hussein alive. He was found near a farmhouse outside the city of Tikrit in a swift raid conducted without casualties. And now the former dictator of Iraq will face the justice he denied to millions. This year, NASA's space shuttle mission carried seven crew members into space where they conducted scientific experiments for 16 days. The Columbia disintegrated upon reentry, tragically killing all on board. This is the news leader, ABC7 Eyewitness News. The space shuttle Columbia explodes in the skies over Texas today, minutes before it was scheduled to land. All seven crew members were killed. Tonight, America remembers the crew of the space shuttle Columbia. 
Following this national tragedy, NASA's space shuttle program was suspended for two years while they investigated the disaster and tried to improve the program. California voters recall Governor Gray Davis from office and elect Arnold Schwarzenegger to succeed him. We have tough choices ahead. The first choice that we must make is the one that will determine our success. Shall we rebuild our state together? Or shall we fight amongst ourselves, create even deeper division, and fail the people of California? Well, let me tell you something. The answer is clear. For the people to win, politics as usual must lose. The year was 2003. With a population of around 27,000 people, Andover, Minnesota is located in the west central portion of Anoka County. In 2003, law enforcement services were provided to Andover by the Anoka County Sheriff's Office. One of their deputies was Dustin Reichert, a five-year veteran who really enjoyed working for this smaller agency. We didn't have a lot of deputies at that time, so I really got to have a lot of experiences. And we had the ability to kind of focus on what we wanted to in between taking calls, which was really nice about having a smaller department at the time as we really got. Mine was, of course, drug and alcohol enforcement. That was a big passion of mine. And uh, eventually that led me to get on the Noka Hennepin Drug Task Force. I was also a drug recognition expert and I really enjoyed that. And my time on the task force was actually just temporary because somebody was over in Iraq from CID. And so they said, do good and you can come back for a regular stint. So I was slated to go back in the later in the fall 2003, but Unfortunately, that didn't happen. At the time, Dustin was engaged to his future wife, Stacy. Uh, Dustin had a passion for what he did. He was good at what he did, and he was always excited to do his job and excited to get the bad guys and excited to, you know, make the city better, the county better. He just really enjoyed it, and he was good with people, but he just really really loved what he did. He loved taking care of people and I don't know, just was really, he was just really good at it. According to Dustin's mom, he always wanted to be a cop. Dustin was such, I'm more of a reserved Norwegian person. Dustin's always been very outgoing. I always said Dustin was the kind of kid, he never knew a stranger. And so I'd have to watch and be very careful because I was so concerned about something happening to him. I'd look out my window and he's talking to some 40-year-old guy and I'd think, who is that, you know? And, and um, so I worried about him that way, but he was a he was a great kid. He, he just, well, he was a brat when he was really little. And I always said, you know, he was a brat when he was little, but then he outgrew that and he turned into a fine young man. Even in grade school, he wanted to be a cop. And I thought, well, I already have one son that died. I don't need another one in a high-risk um, job like that. So I kept trying to convince him, well, if you want to be, because he wanted to be a do-gooder and do good for people. And I said, well, then why don't you be a lawyer and help people that way? I said, oh, you know, maybe even going to being a judge. And then finally, when he was in high school, he said, Mom, he said, I know you don't want me to be a cop, but he said, that's what I really want to do. Well, at that point, I, how could I say, no, I don't want you to do that. Um, that was, it was in his heart. That's what he's always wanted to do. 
As a kid, one of Dustin's favorite TV shows was the original reality TV show, Cops. A lot of little boys always wanted to be a cop, at least when I grew up, they did. And uh, it was probably that my dad loved listening. He had a scanner on 24-7. So whenever I'd visit him in the summers, I would go to sleep with the scanner on and I'd be excited to listen to the calls. And I'd always want to know how they ended. And so that was a big part of it. But then I think when the show's Cops came on, uh, that kind of solidified it. My stepdad, who was a retired customs agent, we used to watch it on Saturday nights. And my girlfriend would be sitting there waiting impatiently for that show to get over so we could go out. In 1994, Dustin earned his associate's degree in law enforcement at Inver Hills Community College in Minnesota. He was 22 years old. Back in the summer of 1998, Dustin was sworn in as a new deputy with the Anoka County Sheriff's Office. He recalls that day as one of the proudest days of his life. Dustin had learned a ton from the task force, and he felt that he was ready to jump back into the patrol division with more experience and more confidence. Both would be put to the test on May 12th. It was the early morning hours of Monday, May 12th, 2003. Dustin was supposed to work the power shift that night. It was a shift he really enjoyed because it tended to be the busiest shift, the shift he could get into the most action. However, due to two officers taking sick days that night, his shift assignment changed. Andover's probably, especially at the time, you could consider it to be one of our nicest suburbs here in Anoka County. Um, I think some outer urban areas are getting a little bit more upscale than that, but Andover has some really nice communities in there. And um, just just an overall, we have a couple cars on total because they, they did our contract. I mean, I'll be honest with you, about a half an hour before this all went down, I was like, nothing exciting ever happens in Andover. Deputy Samantha Cruz, known to friends as Sam, was a new hire at the sheriff's office. She had started in January of that year after serving as a community service officer for the county. Community service officers, or CSOs in Minnesota, are usually unarmed civilian officers who assist with security at special events. They'll come out to community outreach events. They'll help with parking enforcement, traffic control, crowd control, and sometimes will assist officers during incidents. Sam had been off field training for just a few days and was now working on her own. She was also scheduled to work the power shift that night. For over a week, the country had been getting pounded by an intense series of tornado outbreaks. Starting back in the 3rd of May, and 401 tornadoes were confirmed in 19 states during that time period. Fortunately, all were south of Minnesota. That day in Andover, with temperatures around 60 and sunny skies, it had been a seasonably cool, brisk spring day in this Anoka County community. Tonight, it was clear. It was a bright, moonlit night in Andover. Dustin and Sam were both serving as patrol deputies in the city of Andover that evening. Sam was just a few days into her law enforcement career and was 21 years old. So I was new two nights on my own, 
very new off of training early. And um, I was working a night shift, like I said, because they were short staffed and they moved me from an afternoon shift to a night shift. And of course I was new and nervous because everybody is new and nervous when it's their second night. I had a pretty good idea of what I was doing um, and knew that I had partners who could help me if I had questions or needed something. Um, But yeah, I was pretty new. (laughs) I was in my early 20s. I think I was 21 at the time. It was 2.25 a.m. Dispatch received a call from a citizen in Andover reporting loud music from a neighbor. Police and fire. Yes, how can I, um, I want to make a call on someone. Okay. Um, Our neighbor is playing his music extremely loud. I don't know if he's passed out or not. Okay, do you know his address? No, I'm not really sure of the address. Okay, where is it from you? Um, right next door, pretty much. Okay, one house to what direction? Um, we live in duplexes. We're on 140th okay. Northwest. Okay. And it's a south like street of all duplexes. Okay. And we're at 2118. Mm-hmm. This is the one to the, like, if you're looking at the garage, okay. it'll be the one to the left. To the left. So is that north, south, east, or west of you? Um, it'd be, well, depending on which way we're facing. If we're facing south, he'd be to the east of us. So, yeah, he's to the east of us. One house to the east. He's not connected to you. He's just the next. next. He's connected to our driveway. We share the same driveway, but our houses are not connected. No. Okay. And we can hear it in, the, in our house. Okay. That's outside. We thought it was like three or four houses down. Okay. But then we walked down the driveway a little bit, and we noticed that there was a light on in the, like the hallway. Okay. That was it. So I don't know if he passed out or what, but it's pretty loud. Statistically, in the United States, domestic calls and traffic stops are the most dangerous calls for law enforcement. However, the reality is every call an officer responds to can be dangerous and life-threatening, as Dustin and Sam would find out that night. It's a loud music call, you know. It's a moonlit night. It's Thursday. It's uh, 2 a.m. There's no cars except for one car in the driveway. It's... Sam just was newer on a street that gives us a lot of problems. So it was better if she had a second car on that call. Otherwise, a lot of times we're going to, at that time, sometimes parties of two to 300 with one or two deputies. So going to a loud music call in Andover, usually it's not even a two deputy call during that time. Dispatch sent the loud music complaint to Sam. 1157. Dustin was clearing from a traffic stop when he heard Sam get dispatched to the loud music. 3 Adam 40 status. 3 Adam 40 fine. I'll be clear here in a minute and backing Adam 5 seven. 229. You know, I was just on the traffic stop. I mean, just around the corner, maybe three blocks away. She checked on me when she got the call. And so when I pulled up, you know, I came from the east going west. And I hadn't been to that end because that end of that street is not one that I had frequented. When I say we frequent, we're talking about three, maybe four houses that we commonly were at. So as I pulled up, I was a little surprised to see a duplex that I hadn't dealt with before. 
The residence they were responding to was 2110 West 140th Lane in Andover. Well, I knew that neighborhood. It was like 140th Street or Avenue. And I knew um, that was uh, one of, they said, the rougher areas. But I'm from St. Paul, so I didn't think it was a rough area. I thought it was fine <laughs> compared to what I grew up with. So that I knew the area was centrally located, like, but in the lower southern half of town. So it wasn't far from our patrol station. Um, I knew the streets. I'd been down the streets, of course, because I had been working there a couple of years beforehand as a CSO. Um, it just seemed like your very basic fall of loud music disturbing at night. You know, nothing crazy serious about it. With this particular neighborhood, you know, I talk about Andover being good. If we had to have one bad street in Andover. This was it. This was our hood of Andover. It's uh, mostly rental houses, a lot of them duplexes. And when I say this neighborhood, I'm talking about a single one block area of Andover that is responsible for what we felt like was a tremendous amount of calls. And sometimes they were minor and sometimes you had people, big people wanting to fight you. So it's kind of a weird little hole that we had in that area, but that's kind of expected in rental and high density housings. When they initially arrived in the neighborhood, Sam drove by the house in question and didn't hear loud music. She then met Dustin and his squad just down the street west of the residence. So it's typical that if you're going to a noise complaint, you um, drive down the street, you know, your windows are down, your radio's down, so you can hear um, whatever the noise complaint would be coming from, making sure that it um, matches up with the address that dispatch gave you, it's the right location, you know, making sure you have reason to have contact with people um i didn't hear anything so i think i went down the street and turned back around and i parked in front of the house and i saw the neighbor was taking out garbage and that's when dustin pulled up he like cleared the traffic stop he was on a few miles away and came over and parked right behind me neighbors would report later that this was the first time they'd heard loud music coming from this particular house noting that they thought it was weird at 2 a.m in the morning Neighbors said it was not like the owner at all, that he was a quiet, private guy that kept to himself. There was no history of trouble at the house and no prior police contact at the address. Dustin and Sam walked up towards the house and met a neighbor taking her trash out at the end of the driveway. The lady explained her window was open in the house and the music was so loud she was concerned she had a young daughter sleeping in the room and she didn't want her to be woken up, so she called the sheriff's office. That's when I got out and I went and talked to her and she was like, oh yeah, it was super loud and they just turned it down. And she's, I said, well, is there a party going on or something? And she's like, not that I know of. He's just been blaring his music very loudly for quite some time. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll talk to him. The man in question was the owner of the duplex, 29-year-old Eric David Nylon. He was born in November of 1973 in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. After high school, he enlisted in the Navy in July of 1993 at 20 years old. He was discharged in August of 2000. 
He came from a blue-collar family. His father was a longtime pressman for the Star Tribune. And Nyland had been working as an auto mechanic and enjoyed working on old cars. There was a classic Pontiac Le Mans in the garage with collector's plates, a white mid-80s Lincoln Town car in the driveway, and a full-size late 80s, early 90s blue and white Ford Bronco parked next to the garage. All the vehicles there were in great condition, as you would expect from someone into cars like Nyland apparently was. As Sam and Dustin approached the house, nearing the garage, they could hear the Bee Gees playing from inside. So we get out of the car, and as I cross the street, she kind of looks at me, and I just chuckled and said, your call, I'm just here to back you up, uh, which I understand, because you know, you're transitioning from training trainee to now being on your own. It was probably a unique dynamic. And then as we take a couple steps into the driveway and uh, I hear the Bee Gees music and it's clear as day. And no, it was not staying alive. But the music was clear as day. And I just kind of look at her and I said, you hear that? And I smile and I start doing a little disco dance and Sam disco danced as well. Uh, but you know, and then and then she went up to the door. But yeah, it was it was clear as day the Bee Gees playing. Formed back in 1958, the Bee Gees featured brothers Barry, Robin, and Maurice Gibb. The three brothers were especially successful as a popular music act in the late 60s and early 70s, and later as prominent performers of what's referred to as the disco music era of the mid to late 70s. These guys were considered the kings of disco back in the 70s, but this was 2003. The Bee Gees were playing, and I thought that that was odd. Um, it wasn't super loud, but it was loud enough for me to be like, oh, this is a Bee Gees song. And um, Dustin and I decided to have like a little mini dance party on the way to the door to make contact with the um, person who had his music loud. It was a bright moonlit night, and there was little light coming from the house. Sam could see lights from the stereo in the window. Sam approached the front door. She could see the main front door was closed. In front of that was a screen door that was also closed. Dustin was standing by the picture window. It's a Thursday night. It's fully moonlit. And when I say full moonlit, it was bright out. Uh, we've got one car in the driveway. It's obviously not a party. There's not, a, it's the Bee Gees. It's not some kind of drunken, scary thing. And so, I was very nonchalant about it, you know. She approaches the door, she steps up, I think it was a two-step concrete step. There's a picture window to the west of the door, so to the right of the door. Um, as she's standing on there knocking on the door, she peeks to the right and looks in the window. I'm just standing in the picture window and I'm like, all right, I see a living room. There's a light on in the far right corner. It looks like maybe a kitchen. She pounds again, I think. And then I say, all right, I see some shadow movement. All right, there's a male coming out. She looks again. Oh, he went back in. And that's when he turned around. And when he returned, it was obvious to me he had a gun in his hand. We went to the door. Um, there was a big, like, picture window in front of the sidewalk that we were walking down to get to the front door. And um, I was just kind of looking in the windows uh, to see if I could see anything. And it was dark inside. And maybe there was a light on in the kitchen, if I remember correctly, which was towards the back of the house. So I kind of, like, saw this figure move towards the door. And it was kind of like an outline. And in the outline, I saw a gun in a hand that was very clear and it wasn't that I could see what kind of gun what make or model 
I just knew it as a gun. The way he was like holding it, it was down towards his leg. And I said right away, I was like, gun. When we took our, you know, our guns out of our holster and we were saying, Sheriff's Office, drop your weapon. And um, we said it over and over again. Sheriff's Office, drop the gun. Sheriff's Office, drop the gun. Both of them thought that he'd hear them, that he would realize who they were and that they weren't a threat, and then he'd back down and he'd relax, but that didn't happen. We were yelling very loud, gun, um, to each other, so we both knew that he had a gun, and we were identifying ourselves, and what we were trying to do is yell, Sheriff's office, drop the gun. And we were both yelling this very loud. And um, when we were doing that, Dustin went one way and I went another way. Like we kind of split up. Um, We were looking for cover and it didn't seem like there was any. So we were backing up. We were drawn down on him and we were yelling, Sheriff's Office, drop the weapon. And I remember thinking how, how, of course he knows we're cops. Like our squad cars are parked right out in back of us and they're under a street light. And we're both in uniform and we're both saying, Sheriff's Office, drop your gun. The music, like I said, was we could hear it from outside but it wasn't loud loud um it wasn't like what the reporting party had explained it to me to be um so i i know he heard us there's no way he couldn't have heard us and one thing that's interesting is that reports from witnesses around said they heard all this yelling and that was me and Dustin, and they didn't know what it was, and it was us yelling at him saying, Sheriff's Office, drop your weapon. Dustin was thinking at this point, there's no way this is happening. Dustin had been backing up at this point and was between five and eight feet away from the storm door. It was probably closer to five feet, pretty close up. So, like I said, I just took one step away from my partner just to give us each a chance to combat this. Um, as I started panning now, once I knew I was committed, there's nothing you can do. Uh, so I just started committing through. Let me get myself in a full visual place. Again, full moonlit night. Um, I can see his shadow in his outline in the screen door. And as it opens, when it opens, I don't know if you call that a left hand or right hand turn, but it opened where the open side was on my right side and his left side. So as he opens it, it is a pretty slow opening. And I don't think there was any time factors going on. And I knew he had a gun, but then I saw he had a gun. And I was uh, pretty shocked, actually. I mean, the whole thing's still shocking, but the, the fact that his gun came outside of the door and started raising at me, that changed the entire dynamics because up until this point, I'm yelling. We're both yelling, Sheriff's Office, Sheriff's Office, drop the gun. She's in a very high-pitched voice. I'm yelling in a deeper, low-pitched voice. And at some point, I just stopped. And I said, it's the police, drop the fucking gun. And I'm yelling it because, you know, just making it clear, maybe sheriff's office isn't working. And the more I yelled, the more he raised that gun. And there was a point, he's at an elevated position. I don't know if it was his right hand. I don't know if it was his left hand. I don't even know if he's right or left handed, but there was a point where he had that gun pointed at my chest. And I, uh, Uh, so I knew at that point that uh, I was going down and uh, I had committed myself mentally to pull that trigger. I was in the actual act of pulling the trigger. I had already had it at his uh, center mass. And, you know, for those who might be listening, you know, as police officers, we don't shoot to kill. 
we shoot to stop. And we're trained to shoot to the general area that's gonna stop them. In a leg and an arm, you miss. And so we shoot center mass. We try to double tap them so we can cause that trauma and that shock in the body. And I did, I did, uh, uh, I did commit to myself. And by the time I actually pulled the trigger, um, he had that gun pointing between my eyes. By the time Dustin put his finger on the trigger, the man had the gun pointed between Dustin's eyes. Dustin said it looked like the biggest gun barrel he'd ever seen, big enough for Dustin to crawl into. Time felt like it was slowing down, and the gun was pointed at Dustin's head. You know, when I got to the point where I was committed, and when I mean committed, I mean mentally and emotionally committed, um, you know, we trained for the other part of that. And, you know, when I became a police officer, one of the things I knew was always a risk is not just that I might die, but that I might be forced to take a life because this isn't like the movies or TVs. We don't just get to go back to the shift the next hour. And uh, so once I committed at that moment, um, he had already had that gun, like I said, from five to eight feet away, pointed at my eyes. I pulled my trigger and we train, as I said, a double tap and it all went down really fast at that moment. Um, the gun's gigantic, his. Uh, seriously, I describe it as like I felt like I could climb through the barrel of that gun. I mean, it was a big gun anyway. It was a 45 caliber, six hour. And uh, when I did pull that trigger, though, I pulled the trigger twice. In fear for his life, Dustin pulls the trigger. So Dustin and I were splitting and we were going, you know, we were walking backwards with our weapons drawn on him yelling, drop the weapon, and identifying ourselves. And Dustin went one way towards the driveway, I went the other way. And it was, the door opened, um, and I couldn't see him at that point. He opened the door towards Dustin, so Dustin was in his line, and he was in Dustin's line. And I was far off towards the back more by this point. I could see the front door, but I couldn't see him. And what happened was, then I heard popping noises. Sam takes cover by the neighbor's car and radios to dispatch. The time was 2.35 a.m., 10 minutes after the neighbor's call to report the loud music. I heard the shots, um, and they were exchanged between Dustin and the person inside, and they were really close together. And one of the things that like I've always remembered and I can never forget is like how your vision and your senses change when you are in a critical incident and see something happening before your eyes. And I swear to God, I saw the bullets, like, because it was like flashes, because it was at night. And I remember seeing that and like hearing the popping and being like, oh, wow, (laughs) they're shooting at each other, you know? And you see that and like time slows down. And I remember being like, oh, this is what's going on. And then it got quiet. It got real quiet. And I still had my gun towards the door. Because to be honest with you, I was expecting him or her or whoever or a number of people to run out. And I was like, okay, well, I've got Dustin here. He's obviously been shot. And I got to make sure he's going to be okay and protect myself from whatever is inside that might be coming out. So after I saw Dustin get shot, I got on the radio right away and um, called out and I said, 1088, fired officer down. Obviously, I didn't say it that calmly as I just said it now. It was much more intense at the time. 
1088 is the TIN code for officers in trouble. He needs help now. When officers hear this call, the call of one of their own down, they start responding from there. 13 or where's she at? 218 lane. 38 route. 237. the white Lincoln in the driveway, running for cover. As he turned, he used his flashlight to light up the front room through the picture window when he felt a thud against the right side of his body. The suspect, Eric Nylon, had been shot in the chest by Dustin, the round perforating his right chest and right lung, creating bleeding into the right chest cavity. Nylon was able to shoot two rounds back at Dustin before picking up the phone and calling 911 himself. Dispatch advised by radio that they had an open 911 line at that house. They said someone had called saying they'd been shot and that they were barely breathing. They said the person was making a moaning noise inside the location. Dispatch believed it was Nylon. At that point, Dustin knew that Nylon was either dead or dying and was no longer able to come after him and shoot him or Sam. However, with this information, they still couldn't be sure that there wasn't anyone else in the house. They couldn't be sure that Nylon was the only threat in the house. The reality was everything had happened so fast and nothing was making sense at this point. 
By this time, multiple officers started showing up from every agency in that metro area. I turn around, I see all these squad cars. I remember turning around and being like, how did Minneapolis get here so quick? How did Sherburne County get here so quick? Like, these are places that are not close to Andover. And I, state patrol was there. There was all of these, the whole street was lined with squad cars. And um, the first person to approach me was one of my sergeants, and his name was uh, J.J. Platner, who I just have always loved. I think about him all the time in this moment when I, when I describe this, because he approached me and he told me, hey, it's going to be okay. Let's go get Dustin. Because I didn't, I don't know if I knew what to do then. Like, I was watching Dustin, I was watching the house, and now I need someone to help me, like, transition into the next step. And I was like, okay, cool. So we went over and, like, we had a team remove Dustin from there. They kind of scooped him up, they put him in the ambulance. They knew they needed to get Dustin out of there to the hospital, and they did it with a wall of blue and brown. So I hear a bunch of officers getting a tactical team plan together, and then you got you got now retired Sergeant Scotty Nolan from over at Denoka PD. I hear this thump, 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 and I feel a pat on my back a couple times. Hey, Dustin, it's Scotty Nolan. You know who I am? And I'm like, yep. And and so we interacted because Scotty's got a little crazy bone in him in a good way. And uh, he just quick checked me for some injuries and then literally kind of kneeled and sat on me and pointed his gun. And then shortly after that, I think that, that, that rescue team saw what was happening. So they joined him. I got to tell you, I couldn't have been happier in my life to be staring at a bunch of brown and blue butts in my life of men. They, uh, they built a human wall because probably where I was laying, now we're probably talking about 10 give or take feet from the window could be a little bit more could be a little bit less and they just built a human wall they risked their lives for me um, to build that human wall and make a shield so that they the other officers could run in and scoop me up and get me out of there and it was about then that the SWAT team arrived on scene and um, I had no idea what was going on in the house right because I think at some point after I put out my 1088 call I stopped listening to the radio because I was so hyper-focused on making sure Dustin was okay. So I had, I didn't know who was coming. I didn't know that they had a helicopter coming for Dustin. I didn't even know if there were, like, hopefully they started an ambulance. You know, like, I was so hyper-focused on what I was doing. Nothing else mattered. So it wasn't until Dustin got in the ambulance that I think I came to and started really noticing my surroundings of, like, okay, there's, you know, the SWAT vehicles are coming. 
I don't know what's going on in that house and I'm just standing here. And um, SWAT uh, ended up doing an entry on the house because they weren't certain either what else was going on in the house. We couldn't confirm if there were more people inside. We couldn't confirm for sure if he was alive or dead. Um, we had very limited information at that time. So the SWAT team did an entry and this is how new I was. They used the flat flashbang and I was like, oh my God, it's going down again. <laughs> One of my partners was like, no, Sam, that's a flashbang and that's how they do their entry. Like, I didn't even know that. So my gun out, I'm like, here we go, round two. Like, what, what are we doing? You know, and so SWAT did their flashbang, they did the entry and they found um, the person deceased in there. Um, and I was like, oh, okay. So like that helped me relax too because not that I wanted him to be injured or anything like that. I just didn't know what was going on in that house. Nylon had collapsed in front of the front door in the prone position where he bled to death. Exsanguination was the reported cause of death by the coroner's report. At the hospital, doctors determined that one of the bullets hit Dustin in the upper right arm, entered the bicep area, and hit the bone. It then deflected off the bone and exited through the backside of his arm on the inside, that bullet falling somewhere on the ground at the scene. The doctors indicated that the shockwave from the round stretched Dustin's radial nerve around like a rubber band. It destroyed half of his bicep and tricep on that arm. It completely blew out nearly three quarters of his humerus bone, which is the upper bone on your arm. The injury to the radial nerve caused a loss of sensation in Dustin's arm, hand, fingers, and forearm. The bullet that Dustin was most worried about, the one that he originally thought he was bleeding out from at the scene, actually entered his pelvic area just above his penis. So we get to uh, Mercy Hospital. We're just going there because the chopper was up in uh, the, the medical helicopter was up in Brainerd coming down to get me to bring me to a trauma center, level one trauma center. And so we got there, they stabilized me and it was amazing watching that team of, of nurses and doctors and assistants all get in there and just, they, they were ready to go. And it was interesting because I was really appreciative, but it was pretty hostile at this point. I, I think a lot of it had to do with just, just, just the aggravation to the system. And I remember that uh, they're doing everything and they're working on the arm and doing everything else. And I, uh, you know, it was at one point where they're, they're cutting off my pants and I'm feeling so good that I'm alive. And I think they got morphine in me finally because I begged for something in the ambulance. And, uh, and I was just like, wait, just so you nurses know, I just got shot. There might be shrinkage. And I tell that story. It was, it was the story about the ambulance conversation. It was the story about that that started to send messages back to my, 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 my fiance and my friends and my family and my partners. Okay. He's talking that way. He's going to be okay. Yep, that's Dustin. And so they start cutting my pants off. And that, that, that laughter, you know, that changed real damn fast. I, uh, I, uh, I looked up and uh, there was a fucking hole right next to my penis. That's literally my reaction. I looked down and I'm talking one eighth of an inch towards the base, towards the top, just to the right. If you really need to know, um, there is a, there's a damn 45 caliber hole. I, I flip out. I start yelling. I start cursing. If I had the ability, I would have thrown things around the room. Um, in in the middle of one of my F words, everything went black. So I assumed they gave me something to calm me down. And uh, yeah, it was a whew, 
Uh, I've had two kids since then, so let's just give a spoiler alert. Everything worked fine. I've had two kids since then. So I went home um, that morning at some point. I don't remember what time it was, and Dustin had been asking for me, so I changed out of my uniform and put on his jeans and a T-shirt and went up to North Memorial Hospital. And uh, when he had, like, an armed guard, one of um, our deputies, I think, was doing, like, security outside of his hospital room. It's a service that, you know, we offer with there's an officer injured. And um, I go in the room. The room is filled with people. Dustin's hooked up to everything. He had probably just gotten out of surgery. And people had told me that he was in surgery because he was shot twice, once in his right arm and once like, uh, the other um, gunshot wound was just above his pelvis. So I walk in there, and he's still awake and alert. He's loopy because he's on all these medications. And he clears the room. He's like, everyone go. I need to talk to Sam. And I was like, oh, geez, he's going to be mad at me. Like, how do you say, like, super sorry you got shot tonight and, like, make that sound okay? So I was like, you have ways to, like, apologize? Because I didn't know if I did anything wrong. I was so new, you know, like, should I have done something different? Did I handle this correctly? Is he going to live? These were all question marks, and they were big question marks to me at that time. So Dustin clears the room. And we have a little talk, um, and he said, yeah, I got shot. And he said, I got shot in my arm. And he said, they almost shot me in the dick. And he, like, opened his uh, his bedding, his hospital bedding, and showed showed me. And I'm like, Dustin, I can never unsee that. You know that, right? And he's like, no, but you have to see (laughs) it shot me. Fortunately, that bullet traveled pretty cleanly from the entry point to where it lodged in his right thigh about a half inch below the skin. Now, this didn't happen because of his Kevlar vest. It happened because of his pager. So it's actually kind of interesting. So at the time, we, we had pagers that would send full messages, not just numbers. And I had just ordered and gotten uh, from our police supply magazine a pager holder i was pretty stoked about it because the pager would never clip fully onto my duty belt and so i I had just like the last day or two it might have been the first time i put it on my belt and i found a perfect spot which is going to be up front easily access it if i'm fighting it probably won't fall off all right so i'm pretty excited about it and uh uh i i hate to venture what would happen if i didn't because the bullet the hit my pelvis actually hit the pager first and it just hit it on its corner. And um, I actually put pictures of it in my book. I don't fully, I think, explain it. I don't remember. But when it hit the pager, you can see the dented battery inside, but it actually melted the pager. It didn't break it per se. It melted and you can see the rifling in there. And the rifling, for those who don't know, is basically kind of like a bullet's fingerprint. It creates a groove that's going through the barrel of the gun to help identify it. And you can see the rifling in there. And that pager changed the trajectory of that bullet. I was seeing a urologist just a couple of years ago for some, I'm getting old type of a, a, a visit. And he reviewed everything and he just was astonished that that bullet traveled from right above the Mawuhu all the way through to my thigh because it lodged in my thigh. I'm talking, it just lodged just under the skin. I could feel it. And they just did a quick numbing of it with Novocaine and then cut it out. But it did no damage. 
Like the percussion definitely left what's been lifelong problems, but it's just, I don't know how to explain it. I, my right testicle swelled up the size of my fist and to the point where they were like, well, we might have to remove it. And I was like, well, what'll happen if you remove it? And they're like, well, if you don't remove it, and they're like, well, you might be sterile in that side. And I'm like, well, I would be sterile in that side if you did remove it. So let's not remove it unless there's another medical reason. And so the worst I have is just a, a serious hypersensitivity um, to that. But yeah, there's it's it's crazy the limited physical direct damage. I mean, he couldn't believe it missed my bladder. Thank God I didn't have that Coca-Cola I was going to get after that traffic stop because I might have had a full bladder and things would have changed. This is WCCO 4 News at noon, the Twin Cities News Station. Hello, I'm Andy Dominiani. A routine police call turned out to be anything but routine. A sheriff deputy has now been shot. Another man is dead. Shots were fired this morning at a home off 140th Lane North. That's in Andover, and that's where Maya Nishikawa is joining us now, live with the very latest. Maya? Andy, investigators have been here all morning long collecting evidence at the home on 140th Lane here in Andover, and they will likely be here all day long. Now, the Anoka County Sheriff uh, just released information about an hour ago, new information on the case, but he says they are still trying to figure out what led up to the shooting. It is a routine thing, and, and we answer hundreds of these types of calls on an annual basis. Uh, why this one took an unfortunate turn, a tragic turn, we can't answer that right now. We do know that the officers uh, really need to understand the principle that there is no such thing as a routine call. The sheriff also says that they have never responded to any significant trouble at this home. Uh, but the neighbors also tell us that the man who lives there, they consider a responsible homeowner. They call him a nice guy. That's why this all comes as a very big surprise. You don't think it happens to you. You watch it on TV and you think it'll never happen to you. And next thing you know, it's happening. Michelle Narkel had no idea complaining about her neighbor's loud music would lead to violence. I was like, well, should we go over there? And he's like, no. Let's call the police. Two Anoka County Sheriff's deputies checked out the complaint when a man... Nylon had served in the Navy Reserves for around six years and was skilled in firearms. He had a Minnesota permit to carry and was an avid gun person with several long guns and handguns, some placed in normal places in the house and some in more tactical positions like rifles and shotguns propped up against corners and bedrooms. Investigators determined that it was a 45 caliber handgun that Nyland used to shoot Dustin, shooting two rounds through the front door, striking Dustin with both rounds. Investigators also determined that while Dustin remembers pulling the trigger twice, only one round was fired from his duty weapon, which is the round that hit Nyland in the chest. They figured that Dustin may have pulled the trigger twice, but fast enough that the trigger didn't get a chance to reset before the second pull. Anytime a person's killed at the hands of another, law enforcement or civilian, in most states it's considered a homicide, regardless of the legality of the death. This is also true in Minnesota. A jury on June 30th heard Dustin's testimony and reviewed all the evidence to determine if they felt that the evidence warranted a bill of indictment on whatever level of murder or manslaughter they felt was appropriate for the incident. Part of the unfortunate but understood process of taking a life in the line of duty or being involved in a shooting is you have to still have a legal review of it. And that's where the county attorney generally does it. And, you know, my shooting, our shooting, 
it was clean. I mean, there was, I had no choice, but now I have to rely on a whole bunch of other people to make that decision and come to that same conclusion. And so they've used the grand jury for those who are in law enforcement. We use the grand jury process a lot of times and Anoka County does that. And uh, in this case, it went to grand jury. Then cops, old, old time cops, especially often describe the grand jury as you're sitting in a room where you stare at 26 potato farmers and uh, they're all, your life is in their hands. And I got to tell you, it's no offense to the grand jurors that were there, but that's pretty much what it felt like. You sit in a room and, and uh, your life is in their hands and, and you get to just tell your story and they don't have to actually invite the officer, but obviously that's important information. The prosecutor leads the whole thing. Defense attorney didn't get to ask any questions. I didn't fully understand that. So that made it really, really, really nerve wracking. And I, it's been a while, but I can't remember if I found out before or afterwards, but one of my friends in the prosecutor's office asked the lead prosecuting attorney, said, Dustin's okay, right? And the response was, well, he did shoot first. And so there was definitely a very big risk of me being facing criminal charges for something I had no choice to do, but to do. And so, yeah, it was, it was pretty scary and you go through it and my, my God bless him, but my attorney was a pretty high strung guy. And I think at times that elevated a lot of my stress, but he was good. And in the end though, we got what's called the no bill, which means is it's, it's basically says we're not going to indict you or they recommend not to indict. And then the county attorney's office then decides if they're going to move forward in our case, at the time, especially our county attorney would not indict if the grand jury chose not to. On July 3rd, four days after the hearing, the grand jury came back with their decision with no bill of indictment and furthered that the Anoka County Attorney's Office would not issue any charges on the matter. Not only did Dustin have to appear before the grand jury, Sam did too. One day, I came home from work a few weeks later after the shooting, I believe it was, and I checked my mail, and there were papers in there from the county attorney saying I was being charged with murder. Nobody told me that that was going to happen. I didn't know that was a thing. I was very upset because now I was charged with murder, and the first time I was ever testifying in court was going to be to a grand jury because I was being charged with murder. The grand jury decided Sam would not face charges either. Normally, after a critical incident like this, especially an officer-involved shooting, the officers have some time off before going back to work. Sam was sent back to work the next day. Dustin returned to work on light duty on July 17th, about two months after the shooting. He had survived a shooting. He had survived actually being shot twice, and he wanted to go back to work. Little did he know, he would have to fight for months to try and get his career back. And you know, when somebody is depressed like that, and as it turned out, it was PTSD, uh, when they're depressed like that, it's really hard to help them. They have to work through that. And he was not getting any support from the police department. It was like they were working against him and he's trying to get healed. And it was just really an awful time for him. You know, as a mother, you want to help your children. And when you feel helpless and can't do anything, it's just very hard. I'd already lost one son. And then I have this one that's shot and is miserable in his life right now. And it was hard. 
Um, but there was this time after the incident where I was told by the administration to not talk to Dustin. They highly recommended that I didn't talk to Dustin because he was a sinking ship and he would just take me down. And I remember being really confused with that. And I, I didn't like that. I didn't like how that felt. I didn't like how that fit with me because I felt like they were not supporting Dustin. And if they're not going to support this really great cop of what five years, Dustin loved being a cop. Dustin was a cop cop, you know, and this ultimately ended his career. And I remember thinking, you're telling me not to talk to Dustin and you're asking like, because you want to keep me safe? Like, no. Come on, I'm not dumb. I might have been 21, and I was pretty dumb, but I wasn't that dumb. So it was it was uh, quite a fight. I, I had been out for a few months, and then they brought me back on light duty, and I was just doing random sets of jobs and just doing what I could to stay busy, and it, I started really struggling. And it went back beyond the idea that somebody tried to kill me. It went beyond the idea that I took a life. PTSD is a unique thing, and because of some behaviors I was dealing with, because the agency wasn't making a decision. So I kept asking, it's been, it had been eight months and they had never said, I'd been cleared by the grand jury, everything else was clear, but they had never said, Dustin, you're good. And I don't know why that bothered me, but it really, really, really bothered me. And after my captain just saying, you know, you're good, right? You know, you're good, right? I finally told him, I was like, I'm not good. Why are we sweeping this under the rug? Why aren't we just saying this? Just tell me, I don't care if you tell everybody else, just tell me in a piece of paper and he didn't have an answer for me. And I, I had a little blow up one day. Um, I really was hating that. I basically was over them not making a decision. So they then put me at the main office. And then once they saw that I had that blow up, quite frankly, the sheriff at the time didn't think that the guy was going to shoot me. And I, I heard that from a sergeant friend of mine. He'd just gotten back from the sergeant's meeting. Uh, but I, I, I asked for a meeting with the sheriff. And we sat down and I said, can I be frank with you? And he said, well, be respectful. I'll do the best I can. And I said, I understand that you said at the sergeant's meeting that you didn't think Mr. Nyland was going to shoot me. And his answer was, well, I can't deny saying it. And I was like, well, you don't have the right as a matter of fact, if I didn't pull that trigger, you should have asked for my badge because I can't protect you. I can't protect my partners. I can't protect the public. And so we had started building a really contentious relationship after that or before that, probably. So once I had my little blow up, uh, they ordered me to go work out of the main office. So now I'm working out of the fishbowl, the front desk, and I'm doing every task they give me and I'm doing it well because I want to show them I'm doing okay. My lawyer told me just stop talking to people. And the more that I don't talk as I'm an open person, the more people started gossiping. And I seemed to be paying a big price for it. And ultimately they sent me to a psych eval, fitness for duty evals and psych evals. Minnesota has a pretty good system in place overall. And the psych eval really does do a good job of weeding out truly poor officers. And the officers that fail those for a variety of reasons, they can usually pass them again if they're not actually a problem. And the same thing can happen for the fitness for duty. But uh, I understood what I was going. I was in a shooting. I understood that I had had a little outburst. It was a reasonable outburst. I will defend that to today, but it was an outburst. And I was ready to get back to the road and I wanted to be cleared. So I went 
And I didn't like that they were ordering me, but I realized that I was just a little too tension in order. So let's just go. And when I showed up that day, uh, it was uh, it wasn't the doctor that I thought I was seeing. And I was a little defensive, but I remember my attorney saying, just be open, answer only the questions, do only the processes, don't offer extra information, which is not easy for me. And I went through the whole eval and I was doing the little competitive memory things and I have a good time with those. And I'll never forget when he uh, said, well, what's my name? And I told him and he's like, wow, people don't remember that. And I'm like, well, have you interviewed a lot of cops? It's kind of what we do. We scan the room and your name's on all the certificates behind me. And uh, he said, okay. And then he says, oh, you're doing really good. That's rare. And I go, oh, I thought that was a good thing. And then he asked a few questions about medical. And I started answering them. And at one point I said something about getting shot. And he goes, oh, you've been shot? And it was it. That interview was over. I failed that psyche value in a heartbeat after that. Uh, you weren't going to get any more answers out of me. And uh, uh, I, I, I wanted to throw F words out of him. I wanted, I, man, I wanted to storm out of there, but I knew that I couldn't. So I just was, yep, nope, yep, nope, for the rest of the eval. And, and if you can imagine this, I failed the eval. And, uh, and it took them eight months to tell me that I failed the eval after I took it. And we, we kept going in. We're like, what's happening now? We go into the undersheriff's office. What is happening with this? And when they finally gave it to, the results to me, uh, they gave it to me verbally and said that I'd failed it, said that I had a uh, narcissism and histrionics. And I accepted those diagnoses, said they come on from teenage to young adult, and, and that I've had them all my life and there's nothing I can do. And then uh, and I just said, well, I love being a cop. Can you at least just make sure you have a place for me here? Now I'm kissing the butt of the guy that I kind of can't stand at this point. And uh I could, he was compassionate about it. I'll give him that. You know, now we, we were kind of close when he was a captain. He was a really good captain. But anyways, he uh, went over to the human resources uh, director. We had our own for a sheriff's office. Not a big fan. And, and she's just like, I don't know if you'd be covered under any retirement on duty stuff because they said it came on. So talked to my lawyer and had a good cry in the parking lot or a bad cry, I guess I could say. And by the time I got home, I was like, fuck you motherfuckers, let's go. I, I knew it was game on and, and we started going at it, went to a specialist. Turns out that with PTSD, once you have it or once you're experienced cop, once you're experienced shoulder, you soldier, you test in these environments differently. And so he cleared me, diagnosed me with PTSD, said that, you know, because I was going to therapy and said that that it seemed to do benefits and that uh, I was cleared for duty, but to continue seeing the therapist. And uh You'll probably have to read about my book, but uh, it's going to sound conspiracy theorist, but I was absolutely 100% set up for failure. I, 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 the, the betrayal I felt when I realized what they sent to the doctor before I even took the test um, was pretty bad. Sam continued to serve the Anoka County Sheriff's Office and also dealt with PTSD. So PTSD was a real thing for me. Um, I didn't really even know what that acronym meant at the time until people started saying, oh, you know, cops who are involved in shootings uh, or critical incidents of various types. 
can suffer from PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder. And I was like, why would you think I have that, you know? And um, long story short, it's, it's real. It does, it affects you. Um, it affected me in ways that I, I didn't see coming. And those were very frustrating things because not only was I trying to learn how to be a cop still, but I also had to deal with this PTSD component. And um, after my shooting, after the shooting that Dustin and I were in, I felt really overwhelmed because I felt like I was put into a different category of cop. And that was a cop who's been in a shooting, which is a different level than a rookie cop who just started the day before. So I really, it was a lot to take in all the while dealing with PTSD and also watching Dustin deal with his PTSD. And it was challenging for both of us separately and it was challenging for us together. There were things that would trigger it. I'm grateful that I was able to work through it. And I can tell you, like, there is definitely another side to this. There is life after PTSD. There are ways to cope. There are ways to be healthy. There are ways to have a really great career still and a great life. And I'm grateful that Dustin and I have both found that on our individual path with this. Um, he had to work really hard at it for different reasons. And I had to work really hard at it for different reasons. But we were both able to come out, I think, better. And I think one of the things that has been a positive influence for me since the shooting is that my perspective of life has definitely changed and it changed at a very early age for me and if I'm dealing with something in my life now and since that incident that is particularly stressful or feels very heavy at the time I'm able to put it in perspective using this as a basis such as like a bad day and I'll text him with myself and I'll say okay well on a scale from zero to shooting and watching Dustin get shot where does my current situation fall and I'll be like okay yeah it's not that bad it's a solid five you know and so I'm able to I think help others too with that and bring perspective to them and definitely enhance my own life and my own experiences knowing there's so much more out there after PTSD after the incident and life does go on things do get better Yes, there is this acceptance that has to come with surviving one of these and coming out the other side happy and healthy. And that is that this happened. A lot of my time and energy went to this thing, but it can have its positive effects too. And it can often take a lot of work, but it's always worth it. After several years with the Anoka County Sheriff's Office, she went on to serve at the Fillmore County Sheriff's Office, a successful career with a total of 16 years between the two agencies. During that time, she also earned her master's degree and changed careers to teaching, becoming a professor at Winona State University, teaching law enforcement. Unfortunately, this shooting ended Dustin's law enforcement career. So we've been battling with the department for quite a while and we were set up to go see a third non, you know, somebody, somebody different, different doctor to take another psych eval. And I sat there in the, uh, I said, was it Chipotle in Coon Rapids? And we're sitting at the window with my lawyer and I just, I can't believe I 
was about to say it, and my, my heart's pounding. I mean, this job I love, I worked most of my life to get to this job, and I was good at it. I have no problem saying that. And I remember just looking out the window and finally turning to her, and I just at one point said, what if I don't want to do this anymore? And the reality of that, which was very surprising to anybody around me, is that we had a deputy, not going to say his name, that was just bitter and crabby and just hated being around him. And I knew that if, not if, but when I won this grievance, that I was going to be jammed into the courts. And I'm not that deputy. I'm not that officer. And then, or into transports. And as long as he was sheriff, that sheriff at the time, as long as he was sheriff, I was going to be staying there. And then likely I had to have to prove myself to the next sheriff, depending on who it would be. And I just, I just didn't, I'd done good. I'd done good in my six years with them. And I just didn't want to spend the rest of my career being a bitter old crabby cop. So we, uh, we started working towards uh, uh, an idea on how to retire. And I looked at my Lauren and said, by the way, my arm really does hurt at times. Um, I get through the pain and I manage it, but I'm pretty sure that I would be able to retire out of that. So I retired medically because at that time, PTSD, it still has a stigma attached to it now. But in 2003, there was a huge stigma attached to it. So I wanted to do everything I could, if possible, to retire without that because I didn't want it being held against me. I mean, it's taken me years just to say, I suffer from PTSD and not be embarrassed or just shuttle away from people. Dustin opted to retire due to his physical injuries in 2005 to avoid that stigma. But PTSD was and is something that he still continues to work on. You know, PTSD, post-traumatic stress, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, whatever people want to call it, um, it's been an interesting journey for me over the years, coming to the acceptance, being willing to talk about it, being willing to deal with the people that look at you, not bad, but with a, a bit of a pity and not knowing what to say. Um, that's been an interesting journey. And a lot of times it's because people just don't know. Uh, the big thing is, is like, okay, you've been in an incident, move on. Uh, it scares me that so many administration top dogs still think that way. Um, I will tell you, our current sheriff doesn't, but I'd like to give him plugs. Um, for me and what I understand about PTSD and cumulative PTSD is what I would say I have. Most people would be shocked to think that my PTSD should be related to my shooting only, but you have the trauma of the shooting, you have the trauma of the healing, you have the trauma of going through the court systems, you have the trauma of dealing with work comp, which is more of a nightmare than anybody needs to deal with. You have the trauma of going through all of those processes. But what's really what I found over the years, because I went through a treatment called EMDR, and it's an amazing treatment, just they move their eye, kind of like a DUI test. And all of these things started popping into my head that I couldn't believe things from when I was a kid and different calls and, and some traumas that happened with some life losses right after my wedding, which is just six months after the shooting. And it all came flooding back. And I learned eventually it was cumulative PTSD. And, and the way I like to liken it, and I know I read it somewhere or I saw it somewhere or I came up with it in a dream somewhere, but it's like taking a soda pop can. And you take all the crap that happened before you became a copper soldier. And you take all those really crappy uh, uh, partners you work with at times, because we're all bad to each other, we're humans at times. You take all those supervisors that have pissed you off that weren't reasonable. You take 
all the stuff that anybody's done, all the bills that you got, all the stresses you got. You take every single thing you have, all the death calls, because we see the worst of the worst of everybody's day. And we rarely get to see the good. It's, I mean, I worked hard to really see the good, but a lot of us don't get to see it. And you take all those and you seal that up in that pop can and you just shake it up. And the day that you pull that trigger or the trigger gets pulled on you is the day you open that pop can. It just explodes out. And that's, that's my visual when I do speaking events. That's what I describe how a trauma affects long-term or cumulative PTSD. Today, Dustin has a successful, diverse career in the private sector and a beautiful family with three kids. It started with a DJ business and blossomed into a speaking career where he speaks about the shooting and about PTSD. He speaks about the power of the mind and how the mind can help you heal. He shares his message of positive thinking, laughter, and success to audiences all over the country. Dustin's wife, Stacy, says one of their keys to getting through this as a couple was communication and listening. Communication is very key. And if they want to talk about what happened that night, I think just listening. You know, there's some wives I've heard that they don't want to know what they're doing and that they're doing these type of things. But I, I wanted to know and I... You know, I didn't really want to ask a lot of questions about it, but I just wanted to know him to know that I'm listening and I'm here if you need to talk about anything to debrief or just to get anything off your mind. And also just be, just being there, just love them, hold them, tell them it's okay because I know there's going to be bad days. And, you know, my, my thing with him is touch. And any time I felt like he was, seemed he pull, wanted to pull away or anything, it's just, I just need to touch him, rub his hair, rub his back, just touch him because that's what would just make him melt and make him just kind of release a little bit. And yeah, there were times that were stressful and, you know, you, you come upon a bad accident where, you know, a family's killed or whatever. And, and it's definitely something cops don't want to, come up to and they come up to it they see it and they need to they need to talk about it you can't just push it under the rug and just forget about it because then it just builds up and then you have so much stuff under the rug that you can't put any more under there and communicating and talking about things I think definitely just being close in that way and you know it's hard when they come home sometimes because you're always sleeping if they're working you know the B shift or C shift or whatever, but you know, it's always nice to be able to debrief coming home. And even though he would come home in the middle of the night, I would wake up and be like, Oh, Hey, how'd it go? How was your night? And there were times he, he had to talk. He had to tell me what was going on. And I just listened and I may not have been able to give him advice or anything like that. I just listened. And I think that just made it so much more better for him to be able just to release it and know that I was there and that I was, you know, giving him support and stuff. So we need to remember that law enforcement families, spouses like Stacy and moms like Kareen, while they never put on the uniform, they never put on the gun belt, they still make enormous sacrifices in this career for our communities. 
They understand the importance of this calling, the importance of having law enforcement out there in spite of the sacrifices and risks. Even after everything Dustin and Stacy have been through, Stacy would still recommend law enforcement as a career. I, I really think being in law enforcement or even military, anything like that, I think it's a very rewarding job. Obviously in today's world, it's tough because not a lot of people respect that, but I really think that people should still do it. If it's something you really want to do and you really feel a passion for it, you need to just go for it and you need to just do it. And if any of my kids decide that they want to do it, I'm all for it. I'll be a worried mother, of course, but if that's what their passion is and they want to be able to help people, help help their city, help their county, then go for it. I mean, I, I work as a nurse, so I'm a caring person too, and I'm a person who likes to care for people and take care of people, and it's kind of in the same aspect, you know. If you have the passion to do it and help people, just do it. I, I don't think anybody should think twice about it. Dustin and Sam are great examples of PTSD success stories in law enforcement. Unfortunately, with many agencies, there's still a stigma attached to PTSD. Law enforcement is often exposed to traumatic events, sometimes daily, such as seeing abused children or dead bodies or severe assaults. Some are involved in shootings like Dustin and Sam. These events put them at high risk for PTSD. According to the Office of Justice, as many as one in three police officers may suffer from PTSD which is a condition that can lead to depression, addictions, and serious job and family conflict. Other signs of PTSD include nightmares, flashbacks, anger, concentration problems, emotional detachment, and avoidance of people and places. PTSD, when untreated, can also lead to suicide. According to Blue Help, which is a nonprofit dedicated to acknowledging the service and sacrifice of law enforcement we've lost to suicide, the numbers are steadily increasing with 168 deaths in 2017, 172 in 2018, and 228 suicides in 2019. Numbers exceeding the line of duty death numbers during each of these years. One of Blue Help's resources for law enforcement and first responders is First Help. First Help is a searchable database that's dedicated to finding emotional, financial, and spiritual assistance for first responders. This database can help match you with help in your area. It's confidential and it's free to first responders. You can find out more about First Help on their website at bluehelp.org. That's B-L-U-H-E-L-P.org. We'll also make sure that this information in the link is on our website. The bottom line is, if you're struggling with PTSD, whether you're in law enforcement or you're a civilian, there's a lot of help out there. You just need to ask for it. It's okay not to be okay, especially in law enforcement. If you'd like to learn more about Dustin's story, you gotta read his book. It's called 1088 Officer Down. It's a real, raw, behind-the-scenes look at this incident the politics involved, his struggle with his administration to keep his job, and his battle with PTSD as a result of it all. Check out our website to find out more about his story and how to purchase his book at officerdownmemorialpodcast.com. 
While our main focus will always be honoring, remembering, and sharing stories of the fallen officers we've lost, Dustin's story is a first of a series of survivor stories we'll periodically share here at the Officer Down Memorial Podcast. We'd love to hear your input about this and other stories and suggestions on the podcast. You can contact us anytime, day or night, directly from the website. Also, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast as it helps us reach new listeners every day. Thank you for spending the time to listen, learn about, and honor the memory of this fallen hero. Make sure you take the time to thank your local law enforcement for their service and their sacrifice. And don't forget to thank their families too. They also sacrifice so much for our safety. It's up to us to help ensure the sacrifices made by these fallen heroes and by their families are never forgotten. So please share this podcast with family and friends. Until next time, this is the Officer Down Memorial Podcast. I'm Scott Rose. Thanks for listening. A Huda Media Production.